Good morning, everyone. Glad you're with us today, um, especially if you are new, especially want to wish you a special welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, there's lots of ways for you to get plugged in and get involved with whether you are young or not so young, young or young at heart. That's how we'll say it. Um, lots of ways for you to get plugged in at the church. We are glad that you're here. Just want to let you know as we start the new year, coming up the next two Sundays, next Sunday we have a guest speaker who's going to be here. Um, Tracy Pano is a, he was one of our Bible college instructors way back in the day. He works now for the organization One Child Matters, a child sponsorship organization sponsoring children from all over the world. He's going to be with us next Sunday presenting that opportunity for us as a church. I mentioned last week that we want to be a church that grows in all areas of our faith, and we're going to present opportunities for us to serve those in our community and also serve those in need around the world, and one of those opportunities will be next Sunday morning. Invite you to join us. Uh, bring a friend. It's going to be a great Sunday next Sunday morning. And then the following Sunday, we're going to start a new series called The Altar. The Altar. Now, I love stories throughout Scripture that talk about different important things that happen at different altars. Now, in our world, if you think about important things that happen at an altar, you'd think of possibly a wedding. Um, when I was growing up in church, we would have a Sunday night service. And, the, you know, if you grew up in church, you always heard words like, we're going to spend some time at the altar. And that just meant, you know, often it was coming to a front of a room like this and just spending time singing and praying. The altar is so significant throughout Scripture. It is where important moments happen. It is where important sacrifices and things are laid down, sacrifices are made. It's important moments when we declare our faith in God. And throughout Scripture, I love these. There's altars that people set up of remembrance, altars of remembrance of what God did. You would see God do great things for the people of Israel, and they would build an altar because they'd want to be able to look back at that for years and remember the faithfulness of God. So we're going to do four weeks on different stories of different altars throughout the Scripture. It's going to be a great series. I'm excited about that. All right, as we begin today, um, I just wanted to talk about something. I don't usually comment on current events, um, but last week we talked in our sermon and about the mission of this church, the vision of this church, and we talked that we want to serve. We want to serve our community. We want to grow in our faith. And we talked about the importance of being a community where everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome, right? We don't discard anyone based on history or lifestyle or economics or race or geography. Well, this idea, now I know it was different in our country this past week because this was a conversation in terms of immigration, but our president made some comments about some countries around the world, made some rather rude comments about countries around the world and say, well, why would we want people from those countries here? And again, some of you are nervous because I'm bringing this up. I don't usually comment on on stuff like this. But I thought it was so interesting because we had just talked about that as a church, how our heart needs to be for the people everywhere. All people. All people are welcome. And again, I know it's different with immigration policies. But I, I thought it was appropriate because we just talked about this in church. Our heart and God's heart is for all people. And I also brought this up because personally, I have some connections with some of those countries that the president was referring to. My parents, uh, my parents live in Zambia throughout the school year. They teach at a college in Zambia in southern Africa. Now, my wife and I have been there once together, and then I've been there uh, since then by myself with different missions teams. And uh, if you go to Zambia, and I'm sure it's uh, this way in a lot of the countries, possibly in central or southern Africa where Zambia is, here's what I've observed in Zambia. Yes, they are a poor nation. They, ha they are... There's a lot of, 
uh, things against them, you know, economically, politically speaking. Zambia is one of the more stable political nations of, of the nations in that part of the world. But they're disadvantaged in many ways. There's a lot of poverty. There's illness. You know, a mosquito, you can get a mosquito bite here in Minnesota, which is like every day in the summer. But in Zambia, they happen to be carrying malaria. And if you don't have the right medication, then you could die. And there's a lot of kids that die of malaria in that part of the world. Um, there, there's poverty, there's a lack of infrastructure. If you are a young entrepreneur in Zambia and you want to start a business, you can't really loan, you can't really get a loan from a bank. It just doesn't happen. The economy is not strong. So there's a lot of, a lot of chips stacked against them in that part of the world. But here's what I also observe from visiting Zambia. I've also visited several other countries in Africa. Um, you meet the people, and they are a people full of joy, there's a love of family. The people I met in Zambia, they have such an appreciation. Since they don't have a lot of material wealth, they have such an appreciation for what they do have. They have an appreciation for their faith. Anything you can teach them, the word of God, or we went over there several years ago, right after we were married, just to teach them some music things. And I brought some extra guitar strings, and there was some young men that came with their guitars, and a guitar has six strings usually, and these guitars that they brought were all banged up, missing a few strings, and I was able to just put some new strings on guitars, and you could see them light up. Like this was, They had such an appreciation for things like that. Their faith was strong. Um, they had such a love of family. So I thought this was um, an interesting reminder as this conversation was happening in, you know, not that you need more voices like mine adding to the noise because there's plenty of those, if you, especially if you surf social media. But I was reminded this week that God values, God's economy, are often different than ours. Um, Jesus saw value in all people. All people were welcome. Nobody was a cast off. Nobody was a lost cause. In certain countries around the world, like Zambia for one, I really see it as like a beatitudes in reality. It's that the blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. It's like they when they struggle through different tangible things on the earth, it's like God is so real and so prominent in their faith. So that's um, what I was thinking about this week. I was reminded of that as all the talk was going on in our country. And I also recognized, and this is what has to do with our sermon today, that who God chooses to be influencers, who God chooses to be people of influence, is often different than the world would choose. We see that throughout Scripture. You know, for example, there was the day when Israel was looking for a new king, and um, they were told, Samuel was told, well, it's going to be in Jesse, one of Jesse's kids. And so he's like, all right, well, let's go. And they line up the oldest and the strongest boys, and they're like, no, it's not him, not him, not him. David is the youngest boy, and he's not even there. He's not in, even under, under consideration for this. But yet that's who God had chosen. Who God chooses to be the voices of influence is sometimes and often different than what we see as a voice of influence. And so I want to look at a story today of a very awesome story of a unique character someone that you would look at and say, well, that person you wouldn't think would be a great voice of influence, but who God chose to literally change a nation. And that story is in 2 Kings in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 22 is where we're going to look today. We're going to talk about a few verses. Look at this awesome story in the Old Testament. Now, a little bit of background as this story is happening in 2 Kings. Israel... Um, 
you know, the Israelites, we should do a, we should do a series on just kind of the, the whole story once, you know, sometime soon. But Israel, they were in Egypt. They were slaves. God delivered them. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God delivered them into the promised land and said, okay, Israelites, I'm going to make you a great nation now. And so they did that, and after a while they said, we want a king, and God gave them a king. And so it started out the first few kings. Saul was, you know, not a great king, but it was this mighty Israel established as a nation. Saul was their king. And then David became their king, and he was probably the greatest king in, in Israel's history. Just a, a season of great prosperity and wealth and military might and a united country, and they were all worshiping God, and they were seeking after God. And then after David was Solomon. And after Solomon, those three main kings, after Solomon, the kingdom split. So Israel, you know, went through a split. And there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now each had their own king, and this continued on for generations. Well, where we pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 22, the kingdom is divided, um, but the northern kingdom has been uh, defeated by the Babylonian Empire. Babylon has come in and defeated the northern kingdom. All the people have been sent off into exile. It's been attacked and defeated by the Babylonians. The southern kingdom is still there. Now, they still have a king, but unlike the years with King David where it was a great, you know, prosperous nation worshiping God, putting God first, now they're wavering back and forth. One king will come in, He'll say, we need to worship God. God said, if you worship us, we're going to be blessed. And so they'll worship God. And things will go well while that king is there. And then another king will come in. And his heart will be turned to idolatry and idol worship. And so the rest of the country will as well. The rest of the nation of Israel excuse me, would as well. And then things would not go well. So it's this back and forth. I describe it as just this nation of God's people wavering back and forth. Wavering back and forth. And so in 2 Kings chapter 22, in the southern kingdom, in the kingdom of Judah, there is a new king, and his name is Josiah. And he, when he inherits the throne, is eight years old. Okay, so the new king is eight years old, and everyone around is like, oh, man, we're in trouble now. We better help this poor kid. Think of an eight-year-old in your world and think, okay, now you're the president. Go. You know, they would be like, whoa, this could be, you know, dicey. But Josiah becomes the king at eight years old. Now, he is following a couple of really evil kings, and the nation has turned to idol worship. Things are not going well. The northern kingdom's already been defeated. The southern kingdom, where Josiah is the king, now has enemies threatening to attack all the time. It's a very volatile time for God's people. Now, in verse 2 is where we pick up the story in 2 Kings 22, verse 2. And this words, these words will be up on the screen. This is talking about Josiah. It says this, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and followed completely in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. I love that description of young Josiah. Young Josiah, not being swayed by the evil around him, but he did right in the ways of his father David. Now, I just described this. David was not actually his father, right? David was, I think, 12 generations before Josiah. But the scripture refers to his father, David, as like the good king, right? He did the right thing, just like David, the best king, did. He followed in the ways of David. Because Josiah's father was an evil king named Ammon. 
His grandfather was another evil king named Manasseh. And so when Josiah, eight years old, inherits the throne, Israel's gone through two generations of evil kings, two generations of idol worship, and this is where Josiah becomes the leader of God's people. And I mention this because there's really no reason why an eight-year-old boy like Josiah should have a heart for the things of God. There's no reason why he should grow up at a young age, know how to live for God. There's no reason why he would have been taught. He wouldn't have been taught. There's no reasons why he would have thought, I'm going to lead the right way. This is something that you look at and you say, obviously, God had his hand on this young life, this young Josiah. God had his hand on this young life for no other reason. He certainly wasn't learning it from his earthly father or grandfather or the other culture around him at that time. But yet God had his hand on this young boy to say, I'm going to raise him up to fear God, to know the ways of God, to lead people in the ways of God, to resist the influences of evil and idolatry. And I love that thought of God raising up this young life when all the influences around him would have swayed him towards evil. God says, no, I'm calling you for a higher purpose. Now, flash for fast forward, 18 years later, as Josiah is now an older king, you know, the, the very old, mature age of 26 now, you know, think of a 26-year-old and think, now you're the king. You would also think, oh, we're in trouble, <laughs> 26. Any 26-year-olds here? No offense. Um, but this is when Josiah the king is a little bit older, and he is, what he decides to do as the leader, he says, you know what, we have this temple, this place where they used to worship God, and it is in disrepair. I want to repair the temple. So he sends workers to repair the temple. He's all these people working there in the temple. And again, I love this kind of visual that the story gives us of a nation that has turned away from God because, and one of the ways that you can see that it has turned away from God is because the temple, the very place of worship in this nation was in disrepair. It was run down. It was neglected. So Josiah the king sends people to work on it. And then one day he sends one of his, his secretary, a guy named Shaphan, is his name. I think that's how you would pronounce it. He sends his secretary there and says, hey, listen, in the temple, we've collected money, and the money is in the temple, and we've collected it to pay the workers who are repairing the temple. So go get the money. We're going to make sure we pay our bills, you know, very practical stuff. And Shaphan goes to the temple, and he's getting the money, and what he discovers in the temple that day, and you can read through this whole story in detail in 2 Kings 22, is he discovers, tucked away in a corner, kind of behind some stuff, Maybe you've got some storage rooms in your house that you've got things in there that you're like, I, this, I have no idea where this came from. It's been there for like 30 years, and you're like, when did we have a dog kennel back here? You know, I, I never knew that was there. A dog kennel. I was going to say a dog, but then that would be kind of gruesome and weird. So, um, Shaphan is finding the money, and he finds tucked away in the corner of this temple this, this scroll. And on this scroll is God's law that is written down. If you go back to the days of King David, this would have been God's law, the Old Testament. What we have is like the book of Deuteronomy in our Bible. This would have been so prominent in David's time. He would have led God's people in the ways of what was written on this scroll. This scroll would have been read and proclaimed, and everybody would have known what God's law was so that they could follow it. But now, in Josiah's day, they discover it's tucked away in the corner, 
Shaphan, the secretary, he looks at it, and he has no idea what it is. He takes it to the king, and he says, King, we've got, a, we've got a problem here. I found this in the temple. This looks important. It's one of those things that looks important. I mentioned last week that we had, we had a home renovation project in our house over the Christmas break. And one of the things we did is we went through old file cabinets, and we looked at different things, and I opened up one file cabinet, and I was like, man, I have not looked in here for a while. And the first folder I pulled up was a folder and written in big, like, black marker on the front was, it said this, stuff that needs attention, exclamation point. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> I haven't looked at this in a long time. I hope it's not something important. Um, it wasn't, so apparently it didn't need that much attention. But Shaphan finds the scroll, the law, what is supposed to be really important, and he takes it to the king. And the king opens it, and he says, he says the same thing. He's like, oh, no. You know, this is paraphrased, of course. This is how we're supposed to be living as God's people, and yet we're not doing any of it. And you find out in the scripture that he wasn't even aware. Here's the king. Twelve generations after the great King David, here's King Josiah. And not only was he not leading people in the ways of the law, but he had no idea the law was even there. He had no idea that God's word, God's scripture, was even there. And so the king grieves, and the story says the king tears his clothes as a sign of remorse. He says, no wonder things aren't going well for our nation. We are not obeying the laws of God. And so Josiah tells Shaphan the priest... He says, we got to go find somebody who knows what this means. Here's this scroll. Here's these words of God. We have to find somebody who can tell us what this means. And I love this part of the story. We're going to fast forward to verse 14, 2 Kings verse 14. This is when the king tells Shaphan to go find somebody who can say what this means. Now, there's a lot of names in this passage of Scripture. And if you read this, you probably skip over this like this is just so many names. But I love one name that's listed in here. In verse 14, it says this. Hilkiah the priest, and I'm going to, do we got the words on the screen there for this, verse 14? There we go. I'm going to not pronounce some of these names right. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophet Huldah who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harris, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. Okay, so we've got all those names. And I love all those names, but I love the name Huldah, and I even highlighted it in yellow for you. They go find the prophetess Huldah. She was the husband of the keeper of the wardrobe. I'm not sure whose wardrobe. A lot of scholars say this might have been like the king's wardrobe or some of the important temple workers or whatever. She was in charge. She was married to the guy who was in charge of the wardrobe. Now, Huldah was a lady who would sit outside the temple gates in Jerusalem every day. And she was a prophet. And so she would sit there and people would come to her and they would inquire of her. What is God saying about this? Here's something I need wisdom on. What does God say about this? Help me understand, what should I do here? She was a prophet, and she would just faithfully sit there every day, help people, lead people, guide people. So in our story, here's the king, here's the priest, here's the temple worker, and all these leaders, and they're looking at this scroll, and they're thinking, we don't know what to do. We don't know what this means. Go find someone who can help us, and they go find Huldah. They go find this lady who is sitting at the gate of the temple, and they simply asked her, and she lets them know what the scroll meant. She let them know um, what God was saying through. Now, this was a time, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, 
Jeremiah was a prophet in that time, in that part of the world. Zephaniah was a prophet. These are well-known men, prophet, who have parts of the Bible they wrote, you know, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Zephaniah. These are very well-known prophets. But when the king and the priest and all the leaders said, we need someone to really help us, it's like at home when there's a problem and the kids, one kid says, oh, maybe we should go find dad, and the rest of the kids like, no, 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 no. This problem is serious. We need mom. It was one of those things, right? It was one of those situations where they said, we got to go find someone who's going to help us. And they go find Hulda. And Hulda is able to help them to give wisdom, to give guidance. Hulda would spend her days sitting outside the temple gates prophesying. This is so significant to me. I love this because this was not a pro-woman culture back in the day. This was not a culture that was pro-women. Women were treated unfairly. Women were abused and often taken advantage of. And another current events topic today, if you know what's going on in our world, you know that we've totally figured that out in this part of the world. That was a joke. Um, there's still issues like that that we are working through as a nation. But here's Hulda in this male-dominated culture that tells women, you just need to be quiet and sit there. In a culture not only of that, but also of spiritual erosion and idolatry. A country in turmoil, both politically and religiously, wavering back and forth from following God to following idols. All this stuff going on. And Hulda is there. I love this. She's steadfast in her faith. She shows up every day. She proclaims the word of God. She speaks truth. She is a prophet. A prophet is someone who just simply knows what God is saying and is not worried about speaking the truth. Christy spoke on what prophets do a while ago in a series that we did, and she described it this way, which I love it. Prophets are kind of like the guardrails where they say, we're gonna, we want to help keep everybody in line. And so when things veer too far one way or the other, the prophets are the people who stand up and say, no, 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 we're veering off course. No, we need to be going this way. No, this is what God is saying. We need to go that way. This is what Hulda is doing. And the king and his priest and his workers, they go find Hulda. One commentary that I read on this story suggested that the reason they went to Hulda instead of some of these other prophets was that Hulda was easy to find. They knew where she was. And I love that. I love that. I lo it speaks to the steadfastness and her commitment and her faithfulness, where every day she was there ministering. If you wanted to know where Hulda was, every day you knew she's there. She is faithful. She's showing up. She is not getting noticed by a lot of people, but she is there faithfully serving every day. I love that. I love that they knew where Hulda was. And she faces obstacles every day. But she shows up faithful and lets God use her. And in this case, God uses her to change a nation. Because the rest of the story goes like this. Hulda hears from God in verse 15. And you can read this. I would love to have you read this. 2 Kings 22. It's such a great story all the way through. But in verse 15, Hulda hears from God, read, knows what's on the scroll, and says, hey, disaster is coming. Disaster is coming. God is saying, because of your wickedness, because of your evil and idolatry, Judah has turned away from God. God's people have turned away from God, and disaster is coming. But then Hulda says this to the king. However, king, since you have humbled yourself, since you have shown remorse, since you have a heart for the things of God, disaster is not going to come while you're alive. Disaster is not going to come while you are the king. And because of this, Josiah, again, just he senses such a call of God on his life, and because of what Huldah just explained to him, 
that he institutes more sweeping changes throughout Judah, throughout Jerusalem, throughout the temple. All the altars that were set up to worship idols, he tears those down. He gets rid of all the idol worshipers, all the people in charge that were leading the nation the wrong way. He institutes a great recommitment to the things of God. And I love this story for so many reasons. It's the story of a young king who God had his hand on, raised him up to the things of God. It's the story of a great woman of faith in a culture that would not be all that receptive to a woman proclaiming the truth of God. But there's this great woman of faith, steadfast in her commitment to the things of God and her faithfulness. And because of that encounter, because of God using that encounter, a nation is changed. The whole nation turns back to God. I love this story. You can see throughout so many circumstances, can't you, that were orchestrated by God. The young king that God had his hand on. The, the, the God that has Huldah faithfully serving in that one spot. You can see that God has his hand in the, in the scroll that is found in the temple that could have otherwise been, you know, discarded, thrown away, damaged, whatever. God had it there for that time when it needed to be found, for Josiah to see it, for him to go to Huldah. For all these things to happen, you see God's hand in all of these things. So what lessons can we learn from this story of Josiah and Huldah? I have a few minutes left. I just want, like, what lessons can we learn? Well, first of all, one of the huge lessons I get out of this story, and I've spoken on this before, is the idea of spiritual erosion. Have you ever been, you know, experienced erosion by a body of water? Maybe it's a river where you haven't seen it for a few years, and you go back a few years later, and all of a sudden, like, 10 feet of shoreline has disappeared. You're like, wow, that seemed to happen overnight, but you'd never notice it. It's just erosion that happens slowly as the water goes through it. You don't notice it immediately, but until a few years later, you're like, wow, look at the change here. The same thing happens to us spiritually, where there's little things that you don't really notice at first, little areas of compromise or sin, little things that you veer away from God's teaching, little areas of disobedience or where you want to establish your will for your life instead of God's. And you don't really notice it at first. You're not really off track first. But then years down the road, you can look, and you're like Israel here that has veered so far away from God, so far away from the things of God. Spiritual erosion can occur without even recognizing, which is why one of the core things at this church that we believe so strongly in is we, if we're going to accomplish one thing, it has to be that we teach the next generation about God. We have to teach the next generation, those coming behind us, about the things of God so that this faith will continue on. Another lesson I get out of this story, first one is that spiritual erosion can occur, and we have to be mindful of that. Second one is this. In a wavering world, in a culture that is always swaying from the things of God, to the things of this world, to areas of obedience, to areas of sin, and all these things, we as God's people, we have to have an ear for the things of God. We have to be like Huldah, who had an ear for the things of God. When God spoke, she heard it. When God spoke, she recognized his voice, and she was able to proclaim that. We are God's people. We have to have an ear for the voice of God. When God is wanting to speak to you as a student in your school, as a leader in your workplace, as the leader in your home, or as uh, in your relationships with other people, wherever it is, those moments when God says, I've got something for you to say, I've got something for you to do, we as God's people need to hear his voice. We have to have an ear for the things of God. There are 
some religions in the world and some churches even in this state where the mentality is this. There's the man of God, the person who hears from God, and so in this context, that would be me in this example. And then the leader or the priest or the pastor dispenses God's words to the congregation. That's not how it works anymore. If you read the New Testament, that's not how it works. What Jesus said is God's Spirit is on everybody. Everybody is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Everybody hears the voice of God, okay? So I want you to be freed, and I want you to be challenged and encouraged that you are the recipients of God's voice. Like Hulda, you have to um, hone your ability to hear God's voice. And you might be thinking, that's creepy and weird. I don't want to hear God's voice in the middle of the night. You do. And it might not be like that. I've never heard the thundering, wake up, you know, that kind of thing in the middle of the night, because that would cause a heart attack and I would, I would die. It's like when the, when the kids come in to wake you up in the middle of the night. As a kid, there's no way to wake up mom and dad, is there? If you come in loud, mom, dad, it's like, gah, don't do that. But if you come in super quiet, that's even worse. That scares me even worse because you wake up and there's this face right there. Anyways, sidetrack. We need to hear God's voice, and it's not a, I've never experienced the thundering voice of God. What I've experienced is an impression in my heart where God, I feel God is leading me to do something. That is something that needs to be developed. That's, I want to grow in that this year. That's one of my goals for this year is to grow in the ability to hear God's voice. And I think the best way to do it is when you think God might be saying something to you is to respond, is to obey. Hulda, I bet, the, I bet the reason she heard so clearly God's voice is because when she felt God was saying something, she proclaimed it. She didn't explain it away. Um, you know, I shouldn't say that. It might hurt their feelings. Or I shouldn't say that. I didn't sleep well last night. Or I'm just a lady sitting in Jerusalem. I shouldn't really. No, she said, if God's saying it to me, if God's telling me to talk to somebody, I'm going to obey. I think that's the best way that we can develop that ability to hear God's voice. But in a wavering culture, in a wavering world, we as God's people, we don't need to fear. We simply just need to have an ear for the things of God, to know his truth, to know his word to pray. Spend time praying. I talk about this all the time. I want you reading your Bible and spending time in prayer because I want you to grow in that relationship with God. I love being your pastor, but I don't want it to be a lineup of people saying, Pastor, I need to know what God is saying about this. I need to know what God is saying about this because I'm going to say, what do you believe that God is telling you? What do you believe that God is saying? I want you to grow in your ability. I want there to be a room full of godly leaders priests who hear the voice of God and proclaim it. That's what I want. That's what we want to have at this church. But the final lesson I see from this story, and this is what I love, you look at this story, this story would have been about, uh, these things would have been happening about the year 600, around the 600 BC. So about 2,600 years ago, this story happened. Think about that. 2,600 years ago, this happened, and we see God at work. We see God at work. God is protecting the heart of a young child, keeping him close to him, Josiah. God is putting people where they need to be to accomplish his work, like he did with Huldah. God is speaking to those who will listen, and God is at work for the benefit of his people. All of these things happening 2,600 years ago. God is at work. We see God's hand at work. And do you know that he does the same thing today? Do you know it's the same God who is at work today for you? The same God 
who is at work in all these situations is at work for you in all these same ways? Do you know that he's guarding the hearts of your kids? These young lives that we have in this church, God is guarding their hearts. He's raising them up. He's saying, I want to set you apart for the things of God. Do you know that he is still speaking to those who will listen? Do you know that he is still proclaiming his truth to those who will receive it? And do you know that he is putting each of you in positions where you can be of great influence, like he did with Hulda? He's putting you in positions where you can be a voice of truth, of comfort, of love, and encouragement, where you can be a prophet in modern-day America, where you can say, this is what God is saying. He's putting you in those positions where you can be of great influence. And you might be thinking, I'm just a kid going to school. I'm just a, a, a guy going to work every day. I'm just a mom going to work, or I'm just a mom staying at home driving a minivan all day. All these things, you might be thinking, if there is someone who is low on the visibility of influence scale, it's me. You might be thinking that. But that's not what this story is about, is it? This story is about that God, here's the truth, in God's economy, like I mentioned, influence doesn't come from achieving a great position of influence. Influence comes when you have an ear for the voice of God, when you have a heart for the things of God. Influence comes to people like Hulda who are steadfast in faith, have a heart for God, and when you know his word, when you know his voice, when you can speak truth and love in a wavering culture. This is when God says, look at that person there. They are steadfast. They are faithful. They have an ear for the things of God. I can use that. I can use that. They don't have to be CEO. They don't have to be teacher, leader, pastor, president, you know, all these things. They don't have to have the position of influence. God says, I can use that faithfulness, that steadfastness of faith. I can use their desire to hear my voice, and I will put them in positions where they will be of great influence, and they will change the nation. They will change the world. This is what God uses. He looks at faithful people simply just saying, I'm going to show up every day and be faithful. I'm going to show up every day and be faithful. I'm going to show up and have my ear to the things of God. I'm going to show up every day and know the voice of God and read the words of God. And God says, I can use that. I can use that. So young and old, whatever position of authority you think you are in, God can use you for great influence. God will orchestrate situations God will maneuver you around, and God will put you in a spot where you think it's just another day going to work, and there's an encounter where someone says, hey, I am struggling with this. I need some help. And you have the ear of God, and you hear a prompting from God, and you share the truth of God, and a life could be changed, and eternity could be changed. This is what God does. This is how it works. We need to focus less on achieving a position of influence and focus more on being people of influence. People of influence, right? People who hear God. Young people, students, I want to talk to you today. Girls and boys, you may find that God puts you in a position of great influence. Students, young girls here today, you might find yourself president one day. That would be awesome if Oprah doesn't beat you to it, right? Which would also be fine. You might find that God uses you as you grow up to be in a position of great authority. Or you might find yourself having an ear to the things of God 
where God uses you to speak into those with positions of authority. It might be that. You might, you might, speak, you might be the, the person, the young lady or man that the president comes to someday and says, I need to know what to do. I need to know what to do. Think of the influence you could have, having an ear for the things of God. You never know, and this is young and old, you never know how God's going to use you, but I want us to grow in this. I love the example of Huldah. Just be steadfast in your faith. Just learn to hear the voice of God. Know the truth of God. And God is going to put you in places where you can change the culture, the nation, and the world. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for stories like this that we read in Scripture. These young, stories of this young man that would eight years old, that the rest of the culture would say, there's no way God's going to use that young life. But God says, no, I'm setting apart this young life for great things. Story of this lady in a culture that would have said, there's no way this voice of truth or any, anything of value or influence is going to come from this lady. But God says, nope, she has a heart for the things of God. I'm going to use her to be of great influence in this country. I thank you for this story, and I pray that those lessons would apply to us that we would take it to heart. And I pray for those who are here today feeling rather invisible in their role in this world, feeling rather forgotten or overlooked or unusable by you. And I pray that you would invade that lie with your truth, that you put people where they need to be, put people of your heart in positions of great influence, and you use people who are faithful, who are steadfast. So I pray that we would be first and foremost, before we worry about what position we can achieve or attain, that we would have the heart for God and to hear your voice. So I pray for everybody here that we would grow in that area to be able to hear your voice, discern what you are saying, and speak it boldly and lovingly to our world who so desperately needs the love and the good news of Jesus Christ. I ask these things in your great name. And everybody said, amen.